Let's turn again to Ephesians chapter 1 in our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1. Finishing out this section of our sermon text for today, going through the end of chapter 1, um, I think this, uh, this uh, last section of it is going to feel more information heavy than application heavy because Paul is is directing these Christians gaze intentionally off away from themselves to Jesus Christ and how the power that's at work in them has already raised Christ from the dead and seated him at God's right hand so in, in a large sense, the, the section of text we're covering this afternoon isn't directly about us, though the larger point is that it has everything to do with, with what we have in Christ. Again, the big idea of the larger sermon text, verses 15 through 23, is that only by God's Spirit can the saints see and know their privilege and power. Only by God's Spirit opening the eyes of our hearts, enlightening the eyes of our hearts, can we, God's holy ones his, uh, who believe in Christ, can the saints see and know what we have from God, the privilege and the power we have from God. So again, this is part two of the sermon, Do You Know What You're Seeing? And we come down, we drop down here into verses 19 and following. We've already seen that, that Paul is reporting what he is constantly praying for the, the believers, the saints at Ephesus. It's a constant prayer, first of all, for the saints to know God by his spirit, to know God himself personally. That was verses 15 through 17. And then verses 18 through 23, it's a constant prayer for the saints to know what they have from God. He's already said... Uh, knowing what they have from God means knowing because their hearts see better. It's knowing the hope of being called by God. It's knowing the glory of being God's heritage, God's inheritance, his special possession. And now we're under that that uh, fourth subpoint. It's knowing the greatness of God's power toward believers. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? If you have your handout, you flip to the back, and um, I tried to include as much as I could to, to help you follow um, all the things that are laid out here and, and cross-references and such. But developing that idea of knowing the greatness of God's power toward us who believe in Christ, we now see what kind of power this is. God is not giving us some, some um, lesser quality of power that he took out of the back storeroom. And he says, I'm not using this here. <laughs> I can have this. The, God is, is pulling out all the stops. He's using um, his power to the utmost on our behalf and in our Christian lives, bringing us to the, the inheritance he has for us, bringing us to the calling, uh, to the hope for which he called us. And it's the same power, first of all, which raised Christ from the dead. 
It's not that that we hear the gospel story of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. It's, it's not that we hear that and we should think, well, that's something great God did in history. And God uh, now is happy to exercise a little bit of that power in saving me. No, it's the very same grade quality of power that raised Christ from the dead that's at work toward you who believe. He says, uh, so so picking up here, uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We'll see, um, first of all, he's going to talk, Paul's going to talk here about what God did for Christ in his resurrection and exaltation. But Paul is going to come back to this in the very next chapter, chapter 2, and he's going to say it all over again about what God has done for us in Christ, that when we were dead in our sins, spiritually, God, uh, because of God's rich mercy, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. So all this will be important when it is directly applied to us in the next chapter. Right now he's just talking about what happened to to our Lord Jesus when he was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God raised him from the dead. And this was according to the working of his great might. Clinton Arnold says that as if he has not said enough about the unsurpassed power of God, Paul stresses it all the more with a prepositional phrase that includes three more terms for power. In doing so, he nearly exhausts the reservoir of power denoting terms in the Greek language. Point is, he's using every word he can think of for power at work greatly. (laughs) To get the point, it's powerful. And if you say it's powerful, no, you still don't get it. It's his great power, effective for us, that raised Christ from the dead. And Paul doesn't just park on um, the resurrection as such of Jesus Christ. It was a bodily resurrection. Obviously, it's um, the greatest miracle in all of history. But Paul is viewing this as a package. When God raised Christ from the dead, it was God vindicating Jesus of Nazareth as his beloved son who had accomplished redemption for his people and who was indeed approved by God the Father. And in raising him from the dead, he wasn't just raising him from the dead so he could walk this earth once more and have um, another lifetime of ministry on earth, something like that. No, Why did he raise him from the dead? So that he would exalt him bodily to the highest place of authority in the universe. So that's right where Paul goes from the resurrection. It's the same power not only which raised Christ from the dead, it's the same power which enthroned Christ over all. He says, and he seated him, uh, this is the same power that seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is seated, 
meaning he is enthroned. He's not standing at attention, ready to do the bidding of the one on the throne. He is seated at God's right hand in the throne room of heaven. <clears throat> this is, you know, theologians use the, use the term session. Christ's session just means he's enthroned, seated in authority in heaven. At God's right hand in the heavenly places. And this is one of many New Testament uh, allusions, references to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most frequently referenced Old Testament texts in the whole New Testament. It's always coming up, and for good reason. Here's what Psalm 110, the first four verses, says. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, David writing, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So... David's mysterious Lord, and Jesus, of course, made a point of this, didn't he? Talking to the Jewish religious leaders. He says the Messiah is spoken of here. He's the son of David, but but this psalm says this anointed one of Yahweh is David's Lord. He's greater than David. And Yahweh, the Lord, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand being the place of favor, authority, power, The highest place of influence and favor. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Till they're all utterly subdued beneath your feet. Rule in the midst of your enemies from Zion. If he's at God's right hand, this is the heavenly Zion. Now let me pause here and just observe. Many people misunderstand... When we sing hymns like, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Hymns like that call Christ's people to bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Now he is crowned by the praises of his people. But people, people will often, Christians will often say something like this when they sing hymns like that. Won't that be a great day when we crown Jesus as king? Well, my friend, you're a little late. That great day of coronation has already happened. And it happened apart from any of us. That's the point of Psalm 110 and all its applications in the New Testament, including here in Ephesians. He has been seated at God's right hand. To be there is to be king over all. There's no authority which is not his in heaven and on earth. God the Father has already crowned his Son, the glorified Emmanuel, God in the flesh, as Lord over all. Now, people get tripped up because they're they're thinking too narrowly about this. It's true that God the Son, speaking of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son is, is, he's eternally possessed all divine authority. It's not that a member of the Godhead 
goes up a notch in authority. That's not what we're saying. (laughs) But now God the Son is also the triumphant Son of Man. So now the Lord of Heaven, the Word of God the Father, eternally shares our human nature. And in the man Christ Jesus, that humanity has been exalted to eternal glory. Now it's one of us, the head of the new humanity that God is putting together, that is on the throne in heaven. That's what's so magnificent about it. Yes, the Son, again, visibly uh, shares the glory which he had with the Father from before the world began. John 17. But now it's the Son of Man up there. It's a descendant of David who rules over everything from the throne room of heaven. The Son of Man has ascended to God's right hand to rule over creation. He ascended with the clouds of heaven to be installed as triumphant Lord and as glorified Messiah. As we already read earlier in this, at the beginning of the service, Daniel 7, where Daniel sees one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven Uh, Not in this case to earth, but coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days, the presence of God the Father in heaven with the clouds of heaven. He's presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus was on trial, a... An illegal trial in some ways, a farce in in the dead of night before the high priest, the night before he was crucified. Um, The council of the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin said, if you are the Christ, tell us. This is Luke 22. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, that is now that you're going to crucify me. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He references Daniel chapter 7 and he says, he's implying, though they don't understand all that he's saying here, obviously. He's implying, through the wicked action you're about to do to me, you're about to fulfill Daniel 7. Because through the cross, I will be exalted to the right hand of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. As a way of saying, yes. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They charged him with blasphemy and made sure that the Romans killed him on their behalf. After the the crucifixion, Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, says this Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's because Jesus is on the throne that he is able to unleash the new covenant in all its fullness. The Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. (laughs) He says, for David did not ascend into the but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, uh, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That is, God has installed 
Jesus of Nazareth as Lord over all and the anointed one, the Messiah on the throne. The Davidic king reigning from the throne. Then when Stephen stands before the same group that condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy, when Stephen enrages them by telling them they're just like their fathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit, and they've killed God's Holy One, just like their fathers killed the prophets. The Sanhedrin, the elders of Israel, are enraged. They ground their teeth at Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Interesting, he's standing to receive Stephen. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That brings us back to our text in Ephesians 1, where Paul isn't content to simply say he's at the right hand of God. But what does that mean? As we unfold that, well, he's, he says he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, we could take that in a very general sense, meaning every form of rule and authority under God, uh, whether it's angelic or human, we could look at it that way. I think it's more specific than that because of how you see Paul and the rest of the New Testament use these specific words. It's usually specifically in reference to um, created spirit beings, created heavenly beings, whether they are good or evil. Angels, we call them. That's our general term for them. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those four words uh, would have been well known to the people in Ephesus. The Jews would have known them well because the Jews of the time were used to using those words for the angelic powers. Um, but the Gentiles also used those words. Uh, those were terms used of spirit powers, we, even in the magical texts of their day. We'll see why that was important, especially in Ephesus and the, the story of the gospel there. Rule, authority, power, dominion typically was the, the idea of these supernatural authorities, unseen, but that have a real effect in the world of men. And Ephesus, of all places, was very focused on this in every aspect of their lives. Um, it was a great center of magic, supposedly getting help from the authorities above in this heavenly sphere. This is what the, the Gentile Ephesians were used to, um, trying, trying to get magical help from the spirit beings. And the great temple of Artemis, you remember, was in Ephesus. That's what caused the riot because Paul was saying that um, those, those idols were not real gods at all. <laughs> there, there, was, there was an acceptance in Paul's day and particularly in Ephesus that, yes, there's a lot that happens in our world that's controlled by unseen forces. They didn't have this idea uh, that made them scoff at the unseen world. <laughs> and they were very concerned, very worried, those without Christ, very concerned, very worried um, 
to not get on the bad side of these unseen forces. But Paul's saying, look, when Christ was seated at God's right hand, he was seated far, not not just a little bit above, but far above all these other authorities, spiritual, supernatural authorities that could be named. These heavenly powers are mentioned throughout this epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians 3 verse 10 So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Two of those words used here. Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now notice, while Psalm 110 says Christ's enemies are made a footstool, Paul says that Christ is exalted far above all these heavenly powers. Seems to imply, perhaps, that he mainly has in mind hostile spiritual powers. The enemies that are subjugated to the one at God's right hand. The devil and his angels are Christ's enemies, but they're already broken and vanquished by him because of his death and resurrection. Now, they're still fighting to the last man. Think of, um, not that I'm an expert on uh, World War II history, but I've heard some. You think of some situations where the Japanese would fight hopeless battles to the last man, never surrender, right, as, as territory was being taken back from them. We still battle these forces, but they... Uh, They're fighting a losing war. The decisive blow was struck at the cross and in the death and resurrection of Christ. They are still trying to fight, but they're really in retreat. Christ is far above all of them. He is in full control of the situation. And every name that is named, what's that about? Well, again, as S.M. Boss says, Paul has in mind the audience's previous preoccupation in their past lives with manipulation of unseen for- sorry, with manipulation of unseen spiritual forces in what is commonly called magic or occult practices. Acquisition and use of a spirit's or demon's name was thought to give one control over it. Uh, this is well known from. Uh, from that time period. And in fact, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 19 to see it at work. Acts chapter 19. This is during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, of all places. You could say this is the Ephesian backstory of what Paul is saying here about how Christ is exalted far above every, every name that's named. Ephesians 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, people who professionally tried to cast out spirits out of people, but they were not believers. They're they're, um, a weird 
offshoot of Judaism here. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name. Literally, it says they undertook to name the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They thought, huh, that strange Jewish guy over there who's preaching this Jesus, he's having some good success casting out demons. We better name the name he's naming. Because it must have magical power to name that name. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Don't treat Jesus as, the lesson was, don't treat Jesus as just another one of the powers. Another one of the spiritual powers among many. And you can't just use him as a good luck charm either. But he was exalted, even in this situation. And people, when they believed the gospel, these people were neck deep in the occult. And in the paganism. And they brought their all their things they were had been trusting in for success in life. All their incantations. All their spells. All their books. And we, as I said, we've discovered... Books like this through archaeology. They brought it all, which in that world, in that culture, was costly stuff. They brought it and burned it. Saying, this is worthless if we have Jesus. It's worse than worthless, obviously. Uh, It's also loyalty to Christ instead of to these hostile powers whom he subjugated. But this stuff is worthless if we have Jesus who is exalted above every name that is named. It's it's kind of funny. uh, This feels so foreign to us as we're talking about these sorts of concepts in ancient Ephesus. And we're we're thinking, well, what do our neighbors uh, tend to rely on for success in life? And it's just very, compared to this, it's very mundane stuff, often. Though we do have the occult, we do have um, paganism on the rise, or neo-paganism, an attempt at it. Um, and so this is even particularly relevant to us now in that way, too. But you think how many people uh, revere things that are even far lower than some sort of heavenly powers. But Jesus is far greater, has far greater power, which he gives to us, than anything on earth or in heaven. If we have Jesus, we have unlimited spiritual vitality, power, all that we need. Now, 
Thirdly, it's the same power, not only which raised Christ from the dead, not only which enthroned Christ above all, it's the same power which fills the church with glory in her triumphant head. That's a mouthful, so let's look at it. Verses 22 through 23. Paul's not done. This is actually still the same sentence in the Greek. And he, uh, God the Father, put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I know I'm, I think I'm going to have to, I'm still going to feel like I'm hurrying through all the stuff we could go into here. Again, you have a bunch of references you could look up on your own time in your notes. Now, didn't Paul, isn't Paul just being wordy here? He already said Jesus, in so many ways, Jesus is above everything. His authority is the highest anywhere. So why does he say it again? And he put all things under his feet. God put all things under his feet. Well, yeah, you just said that, Paul. Essentially, you're, well, he's saying it again, but this time it's a quotation from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 6. I'll read you verses 3 through 6. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Speaking of the created role which God gave humanity, specifically in the first man, Adam, the dominion God gave us as his image bearers, exercising his rule as his rulers over the earth. He put all things under his feet. But of course... Our dominion over the earth and our our God-given role as his image bearers has been radically messed up by the fall into sin. And so if we go to Hebrews 2, it looks at that psalm and says, wait a minute, what happened? Psalm 2 verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere and it quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then then Hebrews says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Is man in perfect control of his world, in perfect harmony with his world right now? (laughs) Far from it. But, it says, but... We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And yeah, next verse. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's the thread that's coming through scripture and that Paul's bringing out. God put all things under Christ's feet. He's reminding us of the whole story of the Bible, right? All humanity fell in Adam. So our dominion over creation is incomplete. It's under the curse. But now Jesus Christ has come as the second Adam. We see that throughout scripture too. 
We do not yet see all things restored under a redeemed and glorified humanity. We will one day. But what do we see now? We see the head of that new humanity exalted above all things. All things have been put under his feet now that he suffered the death of the cross. The second Adam now reigns over the entire creation as the son of man. And that reign will continue until every enemy is not only vanquished, but brought to nothing. I said a lot there. That's, you know, Paul develops this all sorts of places, especially in the New Testament. So the point is, Jesus is our is not only the triumphant son of David at God's right hand, he's the second and last Adam, the better Adam, to whom all things now are subjected because where Adam disobeyed and failed to take dominion, this son of man obeyed even to the death of the cross. Now he has all dominion as his reward. And, it's not done, and God not only put all things under his feet, but gave him as head over all things to the church. Now here's the first time that word is used in Ephesians, and it's an important word that we take for granted. The church. Ephesians is all about Christ and his cosmic glory and the church. The universal church, the body of Christ, in connection with the exalted Christ. (laughs) Ephesians is all about how we should see everything differently because we are part of the church. But, back to the basics. What does church mean? Well, church in Greek means literally called out, called together. It's... uh, It was used in the Greek Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word, we would say assembly or congregation, which again is literally called together. This is God's assembly, his covenant assembly, whom he's called together now. The church, the New Testament, is called together under the new covenant in the gospel. The church has Christ's universal lordship at her disposal. That's the point here. God gave Christ as head over all things, not just for Christ's benefit, but for the benefit of his church, to the church. We have Christ's authority in heaven and on earth at our disposal to fulfill the mission he's given us. Like Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it equips us for our mission. There's no, there's no actual barrier if Christ wants us to go somewhere for the sake of his name and proclaim the gospel. There's no closed country as far as Christ is concerned. There are harder places to go, but he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That includes so-called closed countries. It also includes your neighbor who doesn't want to hear it. Or, in times of persecution, it includes earthly authorities who do not want to acknowledge that they must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and and uh, that they must not harass Christ's church. But not only does Christ equip his church for a mission, it's more than that. 
It's our benefit in that way. But Christ the head fills his body, the church, with God's glory. So we need to unpack that too. Uh, It says the church is his body, first of all. Christ is the head of a body. That speaks of the fact that, yes, he's an authority over us, but it's also that the head directs the body and makes sure the whole body is nourished and taken care of. It's all that wrapped up together. The church is Christ's body. We'll, We'll talk about fullness and filling at the end here, but... Christ is our head. We are the body parts, the members of his body. You have references there about that. First um, Corinthians 12, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And that means there's one body, but there's many body parts. And we're not all the same in the ways God has equipped us to serve him together. But we're all part of the same body. And Christ is the head. Ephesians, later in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, Paul will say, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So back to Adam. We were just talking about Adam, right? The church is Christ's body. The first Adam had a bride with whom he became one flesh. That's a big deal in Genesis chapter 2, right? And the last Adam has a bride with whom he is one spirit. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. And spiritually speaking, in Christ we are bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. We're his body. So whatever benefits Christ benefits those in covenant union with him by faith take that a little further that means every bit of glory that christ receives he passes along to his church there's nothing he hoards for himself he shares it all with us in the end christ uses his glory to nourish and cherish his bride i don't think i have to read it word for word do i Uh, we'll get there soon enough ephesians 5 where paul is talking to husbands and wives he tells Wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the, the, body, of the church, his body. Uh, and then he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, etc. But he makes the point in there that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And why is that? Because that's how Christ treats his church. The fact that we are his body doesn't mean that Christ can just use and abuse us however he wants, um, like a wicked husband. The fact that we are his body means he cares for us as he would care for himself. And everything he gets, we get. Every benefit Christ gets, we get. And then it says we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, boil it down. The fullness here, I would say, many would say, means something that is filled up. Okay? You see the word fullness? Think of a container that's filled up by something or someone. Got the picture? Um, You could say it's fully supplied, fully equipped. This ancient writer's often use this word, uh, they would talk about a ship that is, it's 
manned, it has a full crew, and it's fully loaded. <laughs> it is, uh, this is, this is filled up. So the idea is, Christ fills us as the church. We are his body, he nourishes and cherishes us, and he fills us. We'll talk about what he fills us with in a second. Uh, Charles Hodge, uh, he kind of went with a little different interpretation in the end, but he did respect the one I'm mentioning, and here's how he expressed it. He said, the church may be called the fullness of Christ because it is filled by him. As the body is filled or pervaded by the soul, so the church is filled by the spirit of Christ. Or, as God of old dwelt in the temple and filled it with his glory, so Christ now dwells in his church and fills it with his presence. I'll just briefly say, seems like part of the background of this is that word pleroma, for fullness. That side, again, in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's tied to when the temple glory of God would fill the tabernacle or fill the temple. It's the same word group throughout the Old Testament. Josiah read texts like this for us today. The cloud came down, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's that kind of wording. And then again, when Solomon dedicates the temple, it's filled with the glory of the Lord. When Isaiah sees the Lord high on his throne, the house was full of his glory in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Ezekiel sees the new temple, the new covenant temple, which we are, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, you have the references. The New Testament tells us the church is the temple of God. It's full of his glorious presence. Because God's spirit fills us, dwells among in us and equips us. Again, I'm skipping a bunch of references here. But this is the house of God of which God said this to the prophet Haggai. Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So this filling with glory by God's Spirit becomes a theme in Ephesians. Have you ever noticed all the words for filling and fullness in Ephesians about the church? Ephesians 3, Paul will pray that as Christ dwells in their hearts through faith, they will be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 4 says that Christ has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then later it says, we're, as the body, we are speaking the truth and love to each other. We're building each other up till we all reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ together. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, filled with or by the spirit. could also look at Colossians 2 where it says you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority now to finally finish our sermon text the church is that into which Christ pours glory God's own glory so the church is Christ's body the fullness of him who fills all in all Christ is the one who fills everything everywhere he, he will fill the heavens and the earth all creation with glory but we're right at the heart of that mission of Christ.
These are lofty themes Paul is trying to start to unpack for us in Ephesians. What's the main point again? We have the very power of the risen and exalted and enthroned Christ at our disposal. And so when we are fighting a sin, we have no less than the same power that effectively raised Christ from the dead at our disposal. We can't say, I don't have, God hasn't given me enough to do this. When we are, when we feel weak and small in this world, but we know it's our task to, to, to give the gospel individually and as the church, we can't say we don't have the power, the resources. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies. And it's because Christ is up there bodily as the son of man. He runs everything. He runs the universe so that you can get done what he called you to do. He runs everything, not only so you can get it done, but so that you can have the blessings of God by the Holy Spirit, those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, so that you can forever enjoy God and glorify him as you ought. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are empowered to gather citizens for an everlasting kingdom in which everyone will know the Lord. Already at this stage in history, we are scattered throughout the whole earth and the church displays the glory of God everywhere, in every place. We proclaim the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we won't fail because we're empowered by the same might which raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to that place of highest authority. We are filled with the divine glory which will certainly permeate all creation in the end. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But to finish it up, back where we started this morning, only by God's Spirit can the saints see and know their privilege and power. Oh, that the eyes of your heart would see it. That you don't go out as Christians who already think they're defeated this week. Or who go out as people just hanging on barely by the skin of your teeth. That's just not true. It's not true. This is true. Pray that God will open the eyes of your heart and turn the lights on. So you'll see it. Let's pray together. Father, please bless your word as it's gone out. Thank you for, again, such uh, patient people who, in an afternoon service, are willing to, to, to try to keep attention and try to, to dig through these things together. Help us to get the reward for our labor, and by your grace, by your spirit, make the truth effective in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.